friend, welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd be thrown into dysphagia if I had to swallow the idea that you missed this week's show. How we got here. It's the story of the unpredictable trajectory that led to today's U.S. nonprofit sector. How did we come to be what we are? The story is told by Dr. Robert Penna, author of the book Braided Threads. This originally aired on August 3rd, 2018. On Tony's Take Two, truly, sharing is caring. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by Send in Blue, the only all-in-one digital marketing platform empowering nonprofits to grow. Tony.ma slash Send in Blue. Let's get started. Here is how we got here. I'm very glad to welcome uh, Dr. Robert M. Penna, Bob, back to the studio. Um, he's the author of the new book, Braided Threads, a historical overview of the American nonprofit sector. He served for five years as a consultant to Charity Navigator and also as an outcomes consultant to the World Scout Bureau. Indeed, his last book was The Nonprofit Outcomes Toolbox, which we talked about on this very show. He's presented before nonprofit organizations and associations across the U.S. and in Canada, Poland, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, and Australia. Bob is a native of the Bronx, New York, and he still sounds like it, even though he lives in Wilmington, North Carolina. You'll find him in his book at BraidedThreads.com. Welcome back, Bob Penna. Thank you very much for having me. Come a little closer. Having, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, coming to the studio. Um, this uh, Braided Threads uh, overview. Mm-hmm. overview. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what, you know, we're... I think the I think you make the point. There's just not enough of a, an appreciation among those of us in the nonprofit sector. Well, it's, it's for, not just for the, where we right, for where, where we came, came from, for where right. we came from. Well, I, I think a lack of knowledge about the sector is probably throughout the population. But for those of us that work in it, um, most people never stop to think about where did it all come from. And uh, like so much else around us, uh, we Americans are notorious for a lack of a historical sense generally. Uh, we just kind of accept that, uh, you know, okay, that mall was built for my convenience right before I was born, forgetting about what was there before, be it a farm or God only knows what. And the same thing with the sector. Um, people just accept it for what it is today and even though they don't know the real size or the real dramatic uh, economic impact and um, I thought that that story ought to be told it actually started uh, as what I thought was going to be a chapter in another work and it got as big as a book and it was to me a fascinating fascinating story what's the thread that you think is most important resiliency through, through the history resiliency in other words, it, it, it is changed. The reason it's called braided threads is because it is not uh, one 
unbroken series of events uh, that uh, took place in sequential yeah. order and all in one line. This is a metaphor, direction. really, for the history and and the strength. I thought well, both, uh, both. Of, the, of the sector. Yeah. But there are all these different things that were happening that, when they were woven together, gave us what we have today. Uh, so that's where the the title came from. But if you had to pick one thing, I think it's a story of resiliency. It's, it's a story of. Uh, before it was a formal sector such as it is today, it still was a movement. It was a, it was a things that people were doing, and it ricocheted off of, reacted to, but also impacted events for over two hundred years. You're you're clear to point out that it's not a history of nonprofits. No, it's how the nonprofit sector evolved because of discrete events in history. Well, that's why it's called an overview. In other words, I I didn't start out with day one and then try to give chronologically month by month, uh, year by year, whatever. What I did was I looked at what I thought were the most impactful things that uh, uh, happened during or to the history of the sector, and those are the things I wrote about. Now, um, I'm not sure we're going to go... Strictly chronological. We we may. The book uh, isn't actually strictly chronological. There are places where I have to double back. Um, Now, when you were on last time, we talked about uh, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth. I. But I know Martin Luther uh, piques your interest. I thought Before, Martin, pre he's pre by about sixty right, years. his fame or, by, was, by about sixty okay, years. Okay. Right, I, I particularly thought it was interesting because if you look at the sector today, it is largely uh, secular, uh, humanist. Um, not that there aren't religious or religiously affiliated organizations in it, but it is not a religious sector. I mean, generally speaking, not that there aren't religious organizations and affiliations, but it is a very humanistic, secular, in some cases, you might say liberal, I don't know, uh, uh, movement. And yet its roots were distinctly religious. So how did that break happen? Why did that break happen? Where did, and personally, I trace it back to uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation. Say more. Well, how, well, how well so? be, because up until then, uh, I mean, again, and this is not to be uh, uh, focused on just one, you know, ethnicity or religious tradition. This is certainly not to leave anybody else out. All right. But the truth of the matter is that Europe was Catholic ever since you know Constantine made it the Catholicism or Christianity the official re- uh, religion of the empire in 330 AD. Europe was Catholic, and then comes along Martin Luther, and he initiates along with a few other people the Reformation, and his biggest point was. That unlike where the Catholic Church said it was faith and good works that got you into heaven, Martin Luther, with sola fide, faith alone, he split them. And he said, you can do all the good works you want. They're not going to get you into heaven. Faith is. And he divided it at that point. And that crack, that infinitesimal hairline crack, got wider and wider and wider and wider. People began to realize over time, maybe they never even articulated it, but it became a sense that there were certain things you do because they're right, not because it's an extra two points to get into heaven. This tradition had not existed theretofore, and that's why I peg one of the first, first steps towards what we have today, and particularly in the United States, with Martin Luther. And now... Uh, so and then Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth was, was important. Right? Yes, very. And now, if listeners want to go back, you can go back to uh, the June 2016 show. We talked for about a half an hour, not all about Queen Elizabeth, but we talked a fair amount about her, more right. than we're going to today. But you could go to uh, TonyMartinetti.com, search Bob's last name, Penna, P-E-N-N-A, and that June 2016 show. Last time he was on, uh, will will appear to you. 
Okay, please. Right. Very quickly. Um, Queen Elizabeth. Well, you don't in, have to go too far. We got, we got oh, time. Oh, okay. Uh, Queen Elizabeth in uh, 1601 uh, issued something that was called a uh, uh, statute of charitable uses. Yeah. And what she did was, um, and this not to say this had never happened before, but she codified it. The idea that things that were of civic and civil benefit could be appropriate targets of charitable giving. What's things? Founding, uh, funding of schools, the funding of scholars, the building of bridges, the building of causeways, the ransoming of prisoners. All of these things were in this list. So what was she doing there? She was A, further secularizing charity, but B, she was putting into the charitable pot Things that theretofore had not been considered yeah. charity, charity, but charity was always personal to help yeah. the poor. Yeah. Now she's moving far away from help the poor. Bridges, bridges, uh, bridges, causeways, bridges and, and ransoming uh, hostages, or also uh, putting together a sort of a charitable pot for the dowry for poor maidens. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, there were things that today you might call either social engineering or what whatnot, but the point is, it was no longer the idea that charity always was always had to be about helping the poor. So, first Martin Luther breaks off the idea of these good deeds to having nothing to do with getting you into heaven, and then she comes along 60 years later and says, on top of that, charitable acts can be things that are good for the community and not necessarily what was thought of as personal charity, putting the uh, the coin in the beggar's hand. Yeah. Beyond Martin Luther, uh, religion the, the evolution of religion I think it has, has, tremendous, has been important tremendous to, particularly we, in the United States we're probably going to hit religion a bunch of times but give us an overview of why why you say tremendous well I would say two reasons first off because of the impact of the Puritans um, I, if, if you wouldn't mind me mentioning another author Colin Woodard's uh, book uh, American Nations he makes Wh- the what's po- his name Colin Woodard okay American Nations he he's makes, in your forward or your introduction he's, he's in the introduction yeah. okay and uh, he makes the point that uh, they were founding cultures here in the United States, and one of these founding cultures he calls Yankeedom, basically the Puritan culture. And uh, the thing of it is that that had a tremendous impact because their worldview, they were the only ones coming here amongst the settlers, amongst the French, the Spanish, the Swedes, everyone else who came here, who came with this idea of creating a better society. We've all heard that term, the city on the hill. Yeah. John Winthrop in their Mayflower Compact was writing this down and was saying that amongst the things we're going to do is every person has to be responsible for every other person. Built into the DNA of that colony and what it became eventually in terms of one of the, I would say, dominant cultures in the United States was this concept that we have a responsibility, a civic, civil, human responsibility for helping each other. We're going to come back to Winthrop, one of the New England Puritans. Right. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. The relationships. They have the relationships with the well-known outlets nationwide to get you attention, to get you coverage when you deserve to be heard, when you need to be heard, when there's something in the news that you can comment on and that you want to be heard on. Or... Maybe it's not something news, like news hook like, but maybe it's a simple op-ed or blog post or getting to podcasts. Turn to has the relationships. So if it's 
cutting edge like timeliness or it's more evergreen. They have the relationships to get you covered, to get you heard. Because your story is their mission. Turn-to.co. Now back to how we got here. So let's jump ahead. Yeah, we may come back. Like I said, we may not stick chronological, but you mentioned Winthrop, uh, New England Puritan. Mm-hmm. The New England Puritans were different than, in terms of their their uh, concept of charity, than the Southern. It was also okay. Pioneers. It was also it, what it had a lot to do with was the, the the way they set their society up. If you think of the South, um, the first off there was the Tidewater South, the uh, Maryland Virginia. Uh, northern North Carolina that was one society but then there was what we came to know for better or ill as the south eventually the confederacy etc that all started in South Carolina it was a plantation both of these were actually plantation societies and these plantations were largely self-sufficient so amongst the things they didn't do they didn't worry about having a public school because the rich took care of their own children. They had tutors or perhaps they sent the children away someplace, but they didn't worry about public schools. And the poor didn't matter. And the poor didn't matter. They didn't need education. Neither white nor black. It didn't matter. So all of the things that we take now as thinking they are earmarks of society, they're earmarks of civilization, they didn't exist down there. Conversely, the first things you did in New England was you, where's the village green? The church is going to be at one end. Congregationals, of course. Uh, the school's going to be at the other end. Everybody supported it through their taxes. So right there you had a division. This then later was reflected in terms of things like the pieces of civil society that you and I would consider to be uh, charitable efforts. They didn't exist in the South. Since religion is a thread that you yes. s- is very important, the Congregationalists in, in that time... Uh, they were the... Were, they, 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 were the became, state, they were the state religion. The, in Massachusetts. Oh, just in, in Massachusetts? Massachusetts in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut. Every, okay. As you went further south, it became the Anglicans. In fact, the Anglicans were a minority in, in Massachusetts. And what, what became of the... You don't, you don't see a pilgrim church or a Puritan church anymore. They became the Congregationalists. Which were supported by uh, taxes. Taxes. The, taxes. They all were. So, all I mean, were. a complete... Yes. Uh, you know, this is obviously... Uh, all pre-revolution, pre-constitution, but right. in that in that day, we had state religions. Yes, yes. In in every every, the, every colony, some of the northern states, every colony. Uh, okay. okay, not no, including eventually, you know, as things got more settled down south, the Anglicans, the Anglican, the Church of England was the state church. So, for example, uh, in uh, Virginia, had to deinstitutionalize the Anglican Church, so taxes wouldn't go to it anymore. But it did have it, this thread, Tony, of uh, of how religion impacted it. It goes through this whole story because uh, when the ministers no longer were part of the government, so to speak, they had to find a new role. You had other sects that came along after yeah. the Second Great Awakening. Amongst them, the Baptists, the Methodists, they were incredibly influential because they had they didn't have all the formal theology that others had. It was that's why you would hear a Baptist preacher referred to as Brother Parsons or something because they weren't or ordained ministers in many cases. And because of that lack of formality, number one, 
um, they could uh, they didn't need a church necessarily they could preach under a tree but secondly they also had a much more accessible kind of idea uh, the way they approached it and a lot of what we see today came from specifically the Baptist evangelicals and the Methodists. Like what? Like what? What are some of these traditions that? Are- well, for example, the first first nationwide uh, survived. The first nationwide uh, uh, charities, you want to call, it, were Bible and tract associations, and they were all run by, funded by, and pushed by these Southern. Uh, evangelicals, Methodists, and Baptists. And that became like the first nationwide charities. Hmm. Uh, the precursors of all the big ones you know today. They were the first ones who were like coast to coast. What so, else? Is there another another tradition that uh, you can, you can I think, connect? I think another tradition I would, I would connect is uh, uh, the activism of uh, many, many uh, groups. So, for example, going back to the abolition of slavery, which, of course, started, of all places, in Boston. Boston was the home of the abolitionist movement. And a lot of the people up there were religiously affiliated, but it is also true that during Reconstruction and whatnot, a lot of the, quote, charitable work that was done down there amongst the freedmen, amongst the freed slaves, etc., was done by Northern Methodists and Northern Baptists. So this... This threat, this involvement, but they yeah. weren't doing it necessarily for the for the same reasons that going back to you know the 1400s, the the Catholic slash Christians were giving money to the poor. That was trying to buy their way into heaven. Yeah. This was slowly, yeah. completely different. This was this was a, a a contribution to society. Exactly, it was it was like a secular bring the act. nation beyond. It was a secular act being done by people who who belong to uh, a a particular denomination. In this case, it's interesting to see. The, the degree of do get think back you know go back to the anti-war movement during the 60s how many of those people marching they were Protestant ministers many of them many yeah. of them were Methodist and they were Baptist this strain never went away what was uh, I'm jumping way ahead now we'll come back to the constitution and uh, separation of church and state but uh, um, ancient uh, Greek uh, Greece, Rome, Egypt. What was what, what was the conception of charity then? It, it, well, Egypt. Uh, or does it vary by empire? Or? Generally speaking, I mean, even in Egypt, there are there are hieroglyphics that have been found and uh, have been translated that roughly say that uh, you know your place in the afterlife been dependent upon how you treated people people in this life. So you might say there was yeah. that kind of All strain right. of charity All in right. Greece and Rome. Charity was much more uh, what. Um, Queen Elizabeth did. In other words, the idea was particularly in Rome, if you want to get ahead and you want to be noticed, so let's say you're in the army and you want to move into politics, you were high up in the army, you would spend stuff, you would spend money on things that the public could enjoy, like you would build a public bath, or perhaps you would pay for a temple to Athena or some small thing of this nature, but the idea was that charity in those days, did the poor didn't count, the poor didn't exist on anybody's radar screen. You had a totally different Perspective of human nature, human value, and it was for your own. It, it was, was for your own good. For your own good. Everything for your own, for your own career. career, right? Career and development, so, right? It was career development. But yeah. the whole idea Today was you could just I could spend four hundred bucks to go to a conference. Uh, then I would have had to build a temple to Athena. Or you could today you could you know, make a big donation to a hospital and then put a plaque on the wall with your name. This is Tony Martin Eddie Wink. Yeah, you know. I'd rather build a temple. But um, okay, all right, so. interesting. All right, thank you. So so let's go. All right, so now we have. Uh, uh, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, uh, the First Amendment, um, 
obviously religion, no no state religion, mm-hmm. and and separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. So how did these factor into these factored into the in three different ways? Number one, part of those those the, the First Amendment is the right of assembly, um, which the British kept an eye on uh, when they when they were in charge. Well, now you could uh, formally have you could have group meetings, you could organize. You didn't have to worry about perhaps the king's soldiers would come and say, "Break this up! Why are you six people uh, gathering here?" One of the things that people did was they formed organizations. De Tocqueville um, wrote back in 1830-something when he wrote his famous, uh, his famous review of, Amer- of America based upon his tour that Americans were already organizing for virtually everything. You name the thought. Music, culture, a, a politics, something that they thought would be done, and Americans were organizing. He has a, he has a comment that says, uh, where in England you will find a, 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 a person of great wealth or prominence heading up an effort, or where in France you will find the government doing that, in America you virtually always find it being done by a citizen's organization. Oh, interesting. So yeah. this could have yeah. been a, De Tocqueville was here in like the early 20, you know, first 20 years or so of American independence. I mean, I believe he wrote Democracy in America somewhere around 1834. Um, and these were already his reflections. Uh, by 1820, the New England area already had over 2,000 of these citizen voluntary organizations. They were the precursors of today's nonprofits. Yeah. And how were they structured? What do we know about their, their organization? They were structured like they were structured sort of as, uh, you know, an association. They had uh, bylaws, they had officers. What they didn't have was either a legal corporate identity, nor did they have. Uh, any sort of fiscal power because the laws that created what we call today a corporation yeah. didn't exist back then. Uh, all right, so we're in the like early to mid 1800s. Are they uh, are they doing their own independent fundraising? Yes, uh, they were doing. Well, they were doing. Yes, they were doing. The way we would. Um, they would call it a. They would call it, it a subscription. They would call it a subscription. They had subscribers. They would put out a, a subscription plea, a subscription request, and it was today's fundraising. But that, they called it a subscription. But the key things in those days were threefold. Number one, uh, they weren't incorporated, so they didn't have a legal standing identity, such as people don't like about Citizens United. That whole idea that it didn't exist. Uh-huh. Secondly, they did not have any uh, uh, separate fiscal ability to buy, to sell, to... They, they didn't. And the, th- the third thing was that the officers or whoever was there, the officers were the identity. So if Mrs. Smith or Jones quit and di- or died, very often the operation would fall apart because there was no way to keep it going. It was very, very crucial for them to eventually get this right to, uh, to uh, uh, incorporate. And one of the most key points about this was that they eventually incorporated under the state laws, the laws of their home states. Now, mm-hmm. who then controlled them? Did the state legislature, because it chartered them or allowed them to incorporate, control them? Or were they independent? And there was a crucial, um, a crucial uh, uh, court case involving Dartmouth University, whereby the courts found that even if public money went to these entities, and even if, in fact, these public entities, these entities were incorporated under state law, the legislature couldn't touch them. The legislature could not give them money, but the legislature could not tell them, in this case specifically Dartmouth University, what to do. That independence was crucial because it allowed these organizations to, in many, many, many cases, precede government in various 
uh, efforts, whether it was uh, schools for the children of freed uh, former slaves, whether it was schools for uh, today you'd call it, you know, handicapped, the deaf, the blind, uh, it ver- they would very often create certain, they would call them asylums. Today you might call them orphanages. For children, there was one in New York City that was specifically for the, shall we say, um, uh, children of prostitutes who might have been called bastards back then or yeah. might be called illegitimate. Nobody, where did these kids go? What did you do with them? And they were, there was a privately funded asylum that was created just for those people, just and for those children. For the poor as well? Uh, alms, yeah, very uh, often. Well, alms houses, uh, they, yes, very, very largely funded by these private entities, but very often, particularly in New York City, New York City under Mayor D. Witt Clinton, high school in the Bronx. Dwight Clinton in the Bronx, yes, yeah, Dwight right, Clinton he, High. He, he became, yeah. uh, he was governor at one point. Um, he was not only when he was mayor, he was also head of one of the largest charitable efforts in the, in, in, in the city. And it was even back then, we're talking early, I'm going to say around, I'm guessing here, we're trying to remember, 1820s, something like that. I don't remember the exact years of his, uh, his term of office. But the city was already paying what today you would call a nonprofit to run the, to run the schools for the poor. So in New York State, particularly, this tradition of public money going to a not what we today would call a nonprofit to provide a legislatively desirable and socially desirable end. Think about it, Tony. This is 2018. You're almost 200 years later. We're still doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. What, what, around this period, let, let's take like mid 1800s or so. Okay. What, what's happening? In the in the rest of the country, with our charitable sector, it, well, slavery and the Civil War are, are percolating, and a tremendous number of of, of um, efforts, private government effort, or rather private citizen efforts, uh, were trying to have the slave trade stopped because the Constitution originally said that the, uh, uh, the the government could not do anything even to end, end the slave trade. Not slavery, but the trade for 20 years. So this effort was going on for a long time, and it was all being done by by citizens, 99% of them up north. Um, A lot of them either spurred by or uh, uh, inspired by the culture of Yankeedom, which was spreading across the country. At that point, I mean, think about it, through from the Mohawk Valley to the Ohio Valley, we spread from east to west. And this culture came with us. And uh, the, the number of people who felt that this was a, uh, a, a scar on our national character uh, increased. And, <clears throat> um, I mean, you've heard, you know, the Missouri Compromise, Bleeding Kansas. We all know what, all the things that led up to the Civil War. But what was, while that was going on, there was this tremendous effort to, among other things, abolish slavery. But at the same time, uh, penal reform. Um, uh, uh, reform of, to, to, to end uh, <laughs> what's the biggest show in New York? Hamilton, right? Hamilton and Burr. Dueling. Outlaw dueling. Um, all sorts these are, of... These, e- are, the, these are efforts, efforts by the, by the non-profits or, 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 or by, these organi- by these by organizations? These organizations. Yeah, okay. yeah. Now, the term non-profit didn't come along until 1954. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get... Well, the, right. We'll get to the tax exemption. Okay, but by these organizations... Uh, penal reform. What else? What, what else? Can you think of other examples what they were doing around this time? Well, it was very, very interesting. Uh, amongst these subscriptions today, you know, there's... There's, everybody's familiar with the term 501c3. Well, that three denotes one level of 501c. There are actually 29 of them. Yeah. Well, one of them, one of the earliest, was uh, what was called mutual society, sort of mutual aid or mutual today. There are mutual insurance companies, which are nonprofit. 
they started back then. The idea is you would, again, have a subscription. And if uh, a fire hit your house, this would pay money to you to get you back on your feet. This was another non-profit effort that didn't exist. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. Every year. Wait, I got to stop. Remember Benjamin Franklin. Every year I get my uh, subscriber's check from uh, USAA. Right. A mutual mutual right. uh, benefit uh, insurance, insurance, company. insurance company and now and bank. Right. Uh, ben Franklin. Uh, ben Franklin uh, uh, is credited with founding amongst the uh, first uh, uh, non-profit things in the United States. The Volunteer Fire Corps in Philadelphia, one of the first libraries. Uh, the Juno Society. These were all... Today you'd call them non-profit effort, efforts uh, that he founded uh, in, in Philadelphia uh, before the revolution. So, again, this was, but interestingly enough, not down south. Yeah. Not down south. Once you started to get towards around the North Carolina border, you didn't see it at because all. Because of the plantation economy? Because of the culture. They didn't have the a plant- civic, there wasn't a civic. The civic sense uh, we have. Yeah, community no. sense. Right. It was, this my plantation, right. we take care of everything here. This is why two of the most revolutionary things that happened down there was uh, Thomas Jefferson's founding of the University of Virginia and North Carolina's founding of one of the first state universities of the country. Because that was unheard of down there. It was just unheard of. So all of these efforts, as I say, were primarily northern. We have about a minute before the break. Okay. Um, the, the tax exemption. I feel like this is a good time. When did that? When did that? Uh, the tax exemption. First, started, tax exemption started way, way, way back because you have to ask about which taxes. So there's probably going to be more than a minute. Wasn't religion? Oh, okay. Wasn't religion the uh, religion the first exemption? Right. Religion and okay. then also s- schools and things, uh, thing, thing, things of that nature. So okay. we'll go back to that. Yeah, right. It broadened, but yes. it started with religion. Okay. So we teased it together, okay. and uh, you always do. Oh, thank you very much. Always a tease. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Truly, sharing is caring. Who can you share nonprofit radio with? I've been providing suggestions uh, through the weeks. How about the new folks to nonprofits? The newbies. They're like babes in the woods. They're, they're jumping to, to avoid the obstacles. They're following the immediate direction. They're just trying to get from like tree to tree to move forward. The trees are the, uh, in the, the, the metaphorical trees are the tasks that they're given either by your office or somebody, you know, who they work for, but they don't see the big forest. They don't, they can't take the higher level view. They don't know where they fit in overall. They're just produce these labels. Let's get this mailing. Uh, do this query. Uh, Volunteer, do, do this volunteer activity. Beep, bop, boop. But what's the bigger picture? It will be elucidated. They will get illuminated. They will find their way through the, from tree to tree because they'll see the entire forest through nonprofit radio. There's the, there's the, <laughs> I don't know what this, but, the new folks, the new folks, they need some help, right? How really, how do they fit in? They're, they're the, the development assistants, the development associates. Maybe you were there. Have, have empathy for them. Or maybe you weren't. Maybe you got right in at the director level or the, the associate VP level or the VP level or have empathy for them anyway. Nonprofit radio can help the newbies. Because we got to bring them along, right? We've had guests talk about this. We all know this. We have to bring them along. Get them started on the right path through the forest. 
Nonprofit Radio. If you can share Nonprofit Radio with somebody new to nonprofits, it's going to help them. And it will help me. And I say, thank you. That is Tony's Take Two. Now back to how we got here. Bob Penn is with me. His new book is Braided Threads, a historical overview of the American nonprofit sector. Just get the book because, you know, we can't do it justice, of course. You're interested in how our sector, our community evolved to what it is now. Um, get the book. You know, we're hitting some threads, some braided threads, if you will. But um, you want the full story. You know, even, you know, Bob mentioned something. I was like, oh, yeah, the Dartmouth case. You know, I, I can't remember it all. Um, just buy the thing for Pete's sake. All right. Um, where were we? See, now I've, I've, I've ranted about bees and sunshine and all this live love. Where were we? Well, well, you mean, help you, me out. You, well, you also screwed up the whole thing about, base, about your baseball, but that's another thing. I did? Well, yeah, baseball doesn't have touchdowns. But anyway, that's a different story. We really? were talking about taxes. We're, <laughs> we're talking uh, about taxes and tax exemption. And that's what you, you had asked about. Ta- the tax exemption. Tax yes, exemption. Okay, thank Where, you. So it started, religion was the first one. Right. Well, what period are we talking okay. about now? Where? Going, go, going back to probably the 1600s. You know, the point of the matter is okay. you have to ask, what taxes? All right. What taxes? All right. Federal government levied very, very few taxes. Before that, the states levied not that many taxes. Most taxes were on property. And very early on, churches were exempted from paying those taxes. Uh, now, it wasn't just the church building. It also became the uh, the, the parsonage where the minister lived. Uh, then if there was a set, another building, a library perhaps, then schools obviously were not taxed, uh, be they private or be they public. Uh, clearly, the public... Government is going to tax itself, so public institutions like a public school were never, were ne- were never uh, uh, taxed. But the idea was that... It, the, the the exemption list grew bigger and bigger. New York State was obviously this was going on in all states. I happen to have a quite an extensive uh, accounting in the book of how the New York State list just kept getting broader and broader and broader and broader. Uh, at one point, it was interesting because the law was changed to allow organizations that included in their charter or their mission the uh, the enhancement of the minds of young people or something. That's how the Y got in, because the Y had tried to get for a tax exemption, had gone to court, they'd been turned down, they had to pay the tax bill, but everybody thought, gee, the Y should be in, in this. The Y is very interesting, too, uh, in the world wars. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right in the book, right? They're, they're also involved. I've heard, yeah, this yeah. is in the book. Yeah. I know, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what I'm saying okay. is that the the, the, the the why was not really, was, was not mentioned, or organizations like yeah. the why. Now, you mentioned New York State. Yes. Um, I love this. Uh, there's one thing I want to read. For, this is from 1799. Uh, New York State. You, you you cite New York State as sort of representative of representative. What, was, what was happening yeah, around there. Yeah, there were variations, okay. but that's very representative. This is an act for the assessment and collection of taxes. New York State, 1799, excerpt. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, of course. No house or land belonging to any church or place of public worship or any personal property belonging to any ordained minister of the gospel, nor any college or incorporated academy, nor any schoolhouse, courthouse, jail, almshouse, or property belonging to any incorporated library shall be taxed by virtue of this act. Right, and that, li- that list just kept going. And as I said, at one point, they amended it to include, and I forget the specific wording, was something about the betterment of the minds of young men and women because there was the YMCA and the YWCA, young, you know, young, young Men's and Young Women's Christian Association. Yeah. So the, the law was changed. And basically what the courts said 
was that these operations were doing good. They were doing good things and were beneficial to society. And therefore, society, uh, it was in society's interest, but also as just a smart thing to do, we are going to do our bit by supporting them to the extent that we do so by alleviating them from the tax burden. They were still not called nonprofits because that concept came way later. Um, but these organizations, these voluntary, and for a long time it was called the voluntary sector. Uh, huh. These, or, yes, that was the name of it. Uh, these organizations uh, increasingly became uh, tax-free. What we know today, as the people call them nonprofits, uh, I'll, I'll do this relatively quickly. Um, one of the last. Revenue Acts of the 1800s uh, included this idea that these kinds of organizations could be uh, should be exempted from federal taxes. That particular Revenue Act was found unconstitutional. However, when things started to fall into place, and you remember it was the 16th Amendment that made the income tax legal in the United States, when that happened, the recognition that these organizations should be exempt was codified and it had to be three things number one it had to be incorporated as a non-profit what does that mean does it mean they can't make a profit they can't make money no what it means is that what any excess extra either has to go back in well, it has to go back in. They cannot... This was contemporaneous with the 16th Amendment? Was this? Yes. Well, it was shortly following the okay. okay. but, but what does a nonprofit mean? Uh, rather mean? Does it mean it can't make money? No, that doesn't. That's not what it means. What it means is it can't take that profit and distribute it to partners, distribute it to stockholders, distribute... It has to go back into the pot. That's number one. The second thing is that no none of its activities can make money for any of the officers. Right, and the third, the the, the third idea uh, is 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 that um, the uh, well, they're all the same. The, the idea is that nonprofit, non-distributory, yeah. and doing some sort of civic good, and so very often it was charitable, and there was a charitable, educational, and the list got you know bigger. Now, illimaginary. I like that word. Iliomisonary. Right, Iliomisonary. That's what they are. Oh, missionary? I believe, believe that is. But uh, maybe, maybe you're right. Check. Maybe check. you're right. Check. Yeah. Um, remember, I come from the Bronx, so I have different uh, pronunciation. Um, <clears throat> well, you were wrong, our, about, you were wrong our, about baseball, too. So our, 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 present tax code, our present tax code comes from 1954. That was the first place where they laid out uh, what we have today, this 501c category, yeah. and where... Uh, the general exemption from and originally the idea was that if these organizations made money they didn't have to pay a corporate income tax on it. Then it became not legally but in terms of practice that they are basically free from almost all taxes other than things like excise taxes or taxes on gasoline or something that you pay as part of a bill. Which is why the local men's association will go to a restaurant and they'll have their banquet and they give the, the, the owner, here's my tax free my tax free number and they won't have to pay sales tax on the restaurant meal. Yeah. Okay. So that's where all that came from. Right, but it was, in terms of its codification, although the roots go back to the 1600s, codification goes back to 1954. Okay. Is that the 16th Amendment? Was that the... Uh, the 16th that, that Amendment was, was 1913. That's what allowed the income allowed, tax. Uh, permitted an income, income a federal tax, income tax. Right. Uh, okay. Right. Okay. Um, let's... Uh, I don't know. World, World War One. We saw an expansion. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, 
Why? Why? Because well, because more relief. Well, but the, because there was no functional way for the government to step in. One of the more fascinating things about it was that uh, the you meant we were talking about the why. The why was the first organization to do what today you think in terms like the Red Cross, you know, POWs, POW camps. Uh, you're checking on status, bringing pre, you know prisoners. Pre- Nobody did that. The government sure as heck didn't, neither the Union nor the Confederate government. It was the Y, the YMCA that first started this, bringing this service to both sides, to yeah, both the yeah. Confederates and Northerners. So they were, okay. they were in, uh, in Confederate POW camps ministering, so to speak, to Union prisoners and vice versa. You say that the Y was the first large-scale service corps. Really, you could say that. You yeah. could, you could, yeah. you can say that. The other th- so it comes along World War One. Um, there was a need for this, but nobody else to do it. It's time for a break. Send in Blue. It's the all-in-one digital marketing platform with the tools that help you build end-to-end digital campaigns that are professional, affordable, organized, and keep you organized. Digital campaign marketing, most software designed for big companies. You know this. It has the enterprise-level price tag. Send in Blue is priced for nonprofits. It's an easy-to-use marketing platform that walks you through the steps of building a digital campaign. If you want to try it out and get a free month and a free 100,000 emails, hit the listener landing page at tony.ma slash sendinblue. We've got Buku, but loads more time for how we got here. The why? The why? It was the YMCA initially, or was it why? Was there why? No. Well, there's two. There's YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, and the Young Women's, which came first. YM. Okay. All right. So. First large-scale service corps, and... and well, 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 what happened was this. In other words, when World War I started and uh, uh, there was uh, a need, when the Americans got involved, uh, when, when there was a need uh, to, again, uh, bring services to this army that was being raised, whether it was you know, outside of Fort Dix or whether it was you know, eventually when the uh, AEF got, got across the, uh, to the other side, like, across the pond. Allied Expeditionary Forces. Right. Uh, American Expeditionary Forces. Okay. Uh, the whole idea was somebody had to do the same sort of thing, and the Y was the first one to step in. The Red Cross eventually joined. The Salvation Army eventually joined. But all of this was being done privately. Meantime, both prior to America's entry into the war, and after, there was a tremendous amount uh, of uh, um, refugee, if you will, uh, victims, victims relief. I mean, you know, war is terrible, whatever war it is. And there's always collateral damage. The people who are displaced, the homes that are destroyed. Well, during war, governments don't stop to worry about taking care of that. They move on. They, want to, they have a war to try to win. So who took care of those people? The refugee problem was tremendous. Belgium became uh, one of the worst uh, sites of it because when the Germans invaded Belgium, mm. the, the, the Allies said, well, you have to feed the Belgians because most of the Belgians' food came from outside. Germans said, no, we're not going to be bothered doing that. We're you know, feeding our troops. You want to give them food? You give them food. Well, it was a relief effort that began in the United States that started working to bring food to Belgium. But it was not government. It was all 
private. It was all voluntary. It was all what you today would call nonprofit. Before our, and there's actually pictures, one of the few pictures that are in the book, before the war, uh, before the U.S. got involved in the war, when we were supposed to be officially neutral, yes, there were organizations raising money for the poor and the suffering and the widows in Belgium and France, and but... There were also organizations doing the same thing, directing money to the German Empire, the Austria-Hungarian Empire, yeah. and Turkey, because we were officially neutral. So there are actually a, a couple of pictures in the book. Uh, I would have appreciated have, more pictures, by the way. I, I like pictures. Well, sorry. Next, next book of more pictures. But the whole idea was this entire effort was being done privately. After the war, massive relief effort run by Herbert Hoover, most of it. Not all of it. At that point, the U.S. government was committing money. But a great deal of it, you know, I, I don't know, proportion 60% maybe, uh, was all private. Today's USO was formed by yes. a, a collection of a bunch of the, uh, yes. a collaboration of a bunch of the organizations you yes. mentioned. The YM, YWCA, uh, Red Cross. Red, Red Cross. Yeah. Uh, that's today's United Service Organization. Right, right. And that's where, that's where it was a coalition that was founded. It was one of the first ever like that, one of the first ever efforts. I mean, there are all sorts of things that happened back then that we, we today, for example, you've heard of United Way. Everybody knows United Way. Do you know where United Way came from? I don't. Community Chest. Community chess, oh. and you know, today most people know community chess as a sort of a space and a card on a monopoly right, board. Right, okay, right. community chess was local fundraising, specifically for disaster, personal tragedy, uh, private relief. So, if you lost your job, or the factory burned down and five people lost their job, community chess was the was was the entity in each individual community that. Would they would go to for relief? I mean, maybe if they belong to a particular denomination, the church might help them out, or as well, or the you know temple, or you know, there's a lot of that. I mean, both in, and there's a whole section there in both the Jewish and Catholic specific uh, um, con contributions to what we know today as the uh, American nonprofit sector, and that that's interesting reading on on its own, but. <clears throat> This isn't to say the churches weren't involved, but every community, there was no public relief. There was no public welfare. And so if dad died or fell off the roof and broke his leg and couldn't work, there was no unemployment insurance. There was no workers comp. People very often, they went to community chest. What wound up happening was uh, one of the transformative events was what we might call uh, cooperative fundraising. If everybody fun fundraised, 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 yeah. whatever the, <clears throat> the the past tense of that is, by themselves, you wound up with competing appeals, and they're banging into each other. Well, uh, it actually started, I believe, it was in Cleveland. Was one of the first ones. Uh, I know there was one in Denver. There was one in uh, in in, in uh, Detroit. There was one, I believe, it was Cleveland. Was this around the? Was this also the Hoover administration? Where yeah. nonprofits complained. We're 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 basically they testified before Congress. We're basically. Running over each other, stepping over each other, trying to trying to help. Oh yeah, well, was that, was that, also, also I forget, was that the Great the, Depression or no? There were, yes, yes, and no. No, okay. there was be, be, the, what you're talking about was World War Two. Oh, okay. The stepping on the each other and tripping, tripping, tripping okay. yeah, over. Yeah. That was World War Two. No, it, it, what happened was when the uh, when the depression hit. Um, sort of the thought was that uh, uh, this community chess would step up, and community chess tried. They would have one, instead of one annual drive, they were having two annual drives. They tried three, but the problem, as we all know, was much bigger than anybody could have foreseen, and their efforts were just not up to the fact that the entire economy crashed, which is why government had to get in. Now, well, it was. 
obviously FDR. FDR appointed, appointed Harry Hopkins to run the relief effort. Harry Hopkins thought that it really should be local government that was doing this. Local government's sitting off on the side. They're very happy not to be involved. Yeah. So what Harry Hopkins did was he said, okay, we're going to do this, and it's going to be federal money, but um, none of the money can go to what today we'd call nonprofits. They got completely cut out. That was not right. That was not to punish the nonprofits. No. That was to encourage. That was or to force, force the states, the unwilling the states, right. and the states cities. that had not taken on public right. welfare, right. to do it. Or we're doing. We'll it. give the money to the state, but we the federal money won't go to these community chests. Exactly. Right. They were trying to force the hand of they the were, unwilling recalcitrant states. And localities. And localities. Okay. Okay. But, but yes, that's, and that was Hopkins' idea. Of course, now, what did the nonprofits do? I mean, this kind of left them out in the cold. Now, you also have to realize that at this point, we keep, we're talking about community chess, but this was one. This is not to say that the arts efforts weren't going on and people weren't founding zoos and botanical gardens. And a lot of this was originally founded by private garden clubs or a zoological society. But the nation was in crisis and relief was always from the charitable sector, which is why it was called the charitable. And now yeah. they, A, couldn't do it anymore because it was too big a job. And B, the federal money couldn't go to them, had to... You know, Harry Hopkins said no so they had to reinvent themselves I mean I said you asked me early on what was the theme I keep saying resiliency and one of the things that the, one of the earliest tests of this resiliency was after the depression because basically the Fed said you can't have no any more money aware, for you. no more money for you yeah yeah so um, say a little about the uh, the Jewish contribution to, to, to what we know I think this is Utterly fascinating uh, There's a book uh, I believe the guy's name Wrote it was Cahill Cal I don't know how Cahill or Cal It's called The Gifts of the Jews The Gift of the Jews the book is probably 20 years old at this point But he makes the point That one of the Biggest contributions That the Jewish culture The Jewish religion Made to us Here in the United States Was in fact Cultural It had to do with How human beings were viewed. When the Jewish immigration here started in large, think about where they, these people had come from. They were either, you know, they were persecuted in Tsarist Russia. They were persecuted in Poland, which was part of Tsarist Russia. They were kicked out of Spain. I mean, you know, a thousand years of this. They had a, an outsider perspective nobody else had. And they brought that here with them. And when they got involved in charity, and they were the ones, they, they were the biggest allies of the black civil rights movement because their idea that nobody should be an outsider was central to them and they brought that to that you think about today's nonprofit uh, space we are concerned about the handicapped we're concerned about all sorts of groups that you might call marginalized or semi-marginalized yeah. and this was antithetical to the Jewish worldview so to me whereas a lot of these other charities were taking care of their own so for example there was the Irish working men such and such but you had to be Irish the Jews said no inclusive inclusive Excellent, thank you. The Jewish tradition. Uh, well, I, I just I, I cannot emphasize that enough because I mean, truly today, if you look at at, at at the the whole core of the nonprofit mission, it is inclusivity, and I personally feel that without the uh, uh, incredible Jewish influence that that uh, particularly here in New York, and New York became kind of like one of those centers of the nonprofit world, it still is. I, I cannot emphasize enough how strongly I believe that that that. Worldview, yeah, that thread 
um, truly, truly helped uh, imprint uh, what we have today. Uh, you got to get the book because there's uh, some things we're not going to be. A lot the, more. the Great Depression, uh, Kennedy's uh, New Frontier, and then um, Johnson. Johnson's and, the, and then and Johnson's the War Against War, War on Poverty. Right. Well, we have what three, four minutes? No, five. Okay. Well, let's, I want to talk about the future too. Okay, well, then I'll do very quickly. So, uh, let me right. just do Johnson. All right. Johnson set us on the road that we're on now. War on poverty. Right. War. Right. The Great Society. War on poverty. We are today farther down that road and that road has been fancied up there are you know there are curbs where maybe there didn't used to be curbs there's a newer pavement nicer pavement than originally but it's the exact same road what Johnson did was he said we are going to take federal money and we are going to change poverty we're going to eradicate whatever his goal was but it wound up that it wasn't the government that was doing it it was government money going to community action agencies and to nonprofits. Now, we don't have time now to go to talk about what happened during, to nonprofits during the 50s between World War II and. Yeah. We, we, we don't have time to Get for the that. book. Just get the book. Get the, well, I have the book. Oh, you mean they should get Talking the book? Talking to the 13,000. Oh, 13, so the 13,000 who are joining this they conversation. Should get, they should get the book. Okay. I should hope to God you have a copy of it. <laughs> That's a different story. Anyway, but the whole point was that. It was hard to get for me to get one. LBJ, LBJ set us on the road that we're on, we're on now. And my fe- feeling, and maybe there are people in the sector who would argue, uh, you know, this is my theory, is that basically things have not really changed in direction, they've changed in degree. Now. Uh, the nonprofit sector is not just the, the partner of government. There's, it's, it's dependent upon the government. I mean, look what happened to the sector during the Depression. It wasn't that individuals stopped giving. Individuals, even during the worst of the, of the of Great Recession, were giving. Corporate was down, but corporate's not that big. It was government money. The sector today is very, very reliant. Uh, on, on, so, again, Johnson set us on the road that we're on now, and we are just farther down it and very much deeper into it. Now, I want to look, look, look forward. You, uh, forward. you cite uh, generational change to, and technology yeah. change as yeah. our biggest uh, opportunities, Those, and, well, opportunities the, I, and challenges. I think, I think two, of the, two of the three biggest things, because we end the book on what's happening in the future. That's the last, uh, the last uh, third or 25% of the book. I think the, the three biggest things that are impacting the uh, the sector and sectors largely unaware of it is number one the growth. We are adding fifty thousand a year. Uh, in nineteen ninety, there were a couple hundred thousand nonprofits in the United States. Yeah. Today, there's over there's a startling chart in the book. One of the pictures. One yeah, of the pictures one of the is the chart. Yeah, I, do, uh, I, drew the, that, I drew that myself. Dramatic rise. Um, now there's over one point seven six million. Actually, nobody as as uh, Lester Solomon, who's one of the sages of the of the of the sector, says nobody really knows how many there are and it's because there's no registration there's reporting a different story so the growth this can't just go on 50,000 new ones a year even given three to four percent right. you know uh, dwindling and going away talk about technology and Secondly, technology uh, you talked before about making online donations easy that is changing the paradigm between donors and organizations such that we've never seen before you and I are of an, of an age when we still remember uh, a March of Dimes going door to door right that is yeah, over those are canisters uh, yeah. canisters yeah. but think about it now we are making it so easy for online or text but we're also making making it very easy to give uninformed donations because it's impulse, it's on the second, and yeah. it's right there in your finger. The third thing is the generational change. We're already seeing the statisticians and the demographers are already seeing a great, great, great change in terms of values and behavior amongst the millennials. And 
us, but not just us, also the generation right behind us. So these three things churning are have the power to totally change the nonprofit sector as we know it over the course of the next 15 years. And all I'm saying is we as a sector should be aware of these things and be prepared for what could happen and maybe try to steer the ship instead of just being a cork bobbing along where the tides and the winds take us where they will. Just get the book, for God's sake. Bob Penner, Braided Threads, a historical overview of the American nonprofit sector. You'll find uh, Bob and his book at BraidedThreads.com. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you. Next week, Edgar Villanueva returns with a popular archive show, Decolonizing Wealth. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission, turn-2.co. And by Send in Blue, the only all-in-one digital marketing platform empowering nonprofits to grow. Tony.ma slash Send in Blue. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great 